Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you will hear from a panel of expert speakers. We will allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star then zero on your touchtone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would now like to introduce the moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Messner, Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Well, thank you so much, uh, Michelle, and I, too, would like to welcome everyone to today's workshop, Update on Clinical Trials, How They Work, and this is a really very important topic today. I know it's on everyone's mind, and we offer this program as often as we can because it's something that you all want to know more and more about um, and, and become more comfortable with as well. Um, today's program is supported by Bristol-Myers Squibb and Pharmacyclics LLC and AbV Company and Janssen Biotech, Inc., administered by Janssen Scientific Affairs, LLC, and I really want to thank them for their support of the program. Now, we have um, many of you on the call today. We have over 253 participants on the call today. That's really a credit to all of you um, that you're spending the next hour with us. Um, and you come from all of the United States, from both rural, urban, and suburban areas. And we also have international participants today from Canada, India, Oman, Pakistan, Saudi Arabia, Taiwan, and the United Kingdom. So this is a, a bit of a global call as well, and we are delighted to have both the U.S. participants and international participants on the call today. Now, we have uh, wonderful speakers on our program today, and before we actually begin with hearing our speakers, um, there are a few questions I'd like to ask all of you before the program begins. And, um, and um, we actually would like to do that so that we have a sense of what you know really coming into the program. It will help us to plan programs on this topic um, better going forward to get a sense of what you need to know and, and, and your, what you would like to learn going forward. So our first question today is, and again, on a scale of one to five, with one the highest rating and five the lowest rating, please select your rating. And the first question is, I understand what happens in a clinical trial. Again, one is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And the next question is, I understand the meaning of informed consent. Again, one is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And the next question is, I know how one may participate in a clinical trial. Again, one is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And actually just two questions left. The next question is, I know specific questions to ask the healthcare team about clinical trial participation in the context of COVID-19. Again, one is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And the last question is, 
I understand including clinical trials as a treatment option. One is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. So I want to thank you all for participating in these questions. Again, it will help us in our planning. And now it's my great pleasure to introduce our first speaker. And our first speaker is Dr. Michael Wong. Dr. Wong is Professor of Cutaneous Cancers, Medical Oncology, Executive Director, Integration and Program Development, Cancer Network, the University of Texas MD Anderson Cancer Center. And Dr. Wong will be addressing an overview of clinical trials and why they are important in the context of COVID-19, understanding your treatment options, including clinical trials, types of clinical trials and what happens in a clinical trial, specific questions to ask your healthcare team about clinical trial participation in the context of COVID-19. It's my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Wong. Thank you, Dr. Messner. It's a great honor and pleasure to uh, join you all today to speak about these important topics and, and to participate with my esteemed colleagues, uh, which you'll hear about after I speak. And uh, the most important thing I want to uh, start with the, the, the takeaway line are two things. Number one, clinical trials are extremely important because that's the way we are able to move cancer therapy forward. And more importantly, it is a, the mechanism, the way in which we can go and and, and bring out to, to people who need it, our patients, new therapies, new strategies, new techniques. Uh, we just don't do it willy-nilly. We have to do it in a specific way. And in multicenter trials, we do it all the same way. So at the end of the day, we can say yes or no that this works. And if it does work, what the contexts are, and what are, the, what are the good things that can come of it, and what are the things that may not so good to come of it. And all that comes from doing a trial in a systematic way. That's the first take-home message. So I'm leaving you with a take-home message first. The second take-home message, which I'll re reiterate at the end, is you are the boss. Uh, our patients and their families who participate in these trials are really uh, uh, sitting in the bird seat. You folks control everything you do. You have the right to say yes and the right to say no and to ask any question that you wish. So that's important to know. You are, you are the engine that drives this. So... Uh, let's, let's speak about some of the details. When you get to the point where we have a clinical trial, you know, one of the important things uh, as you discuss this with your uh, uh, healthcare provider is to understand what your treatment options are at the time that you're there. So we are at different points of our, uh, at the spectrum of our treatment. Some are early on, some are in the diagnosis stage, some are in the treatment stage, some are in the follow-up stage. At every one of these stages, there may be opportunities where you may be asked to participate in a clinical trial. The important thing is the trial is something that is brought forward as a way to uh, hopefully extend what we're doing right now and, uh, and uh, into new territory or to learn new things about the situation or even better to, to maybe improve upon it. But the important thing for you who are sitting there and listening to this is to, is to ask the question, what are my options? You know, if it wasn't for the trial, what would you be doing? So, and these things are called standards of care. So what is the standard of care that you would, that would be uh, taking place uh, should you decide not to go into a clinical trial? And remember, trials are offered to you because those are opportunities that we have to improve upon what we're doing, to offer new things, and importantly, we cannot do that in a willy-nilly way. We have to do it in a systematic way. So even if it's a trial that we do only in one institution, it's done in a way that, that, that everyone who's on the trial is, 
it goes through the exact same procedures. And that's important in order to understand um, and answer the question that we're trying to, to, to get to. The second thing is, uh, is when you are looking at clinical trials, we have different types of clinical trials. And uh, uh, these are arranged across phases. So we have things like phase one, phase two, phase three clinical trials. And, and, and those labels usually apply to therapeutic trials, trials in which we're treating people. Phase one usually means that this is a, a strategy, a medicine, or a technique which is being used for the first time systematically in people. And be aware that before anything gets to a, a, any clinical trial, even a phase one, there is a tremendous amount of data that has gone into to really parse through to get to a point where we think this is something which is going to be useful in people. It's already gone through ethics review. It's gone through a scientific review. And all of those things have to take place, and the trial has to undergo scrutiny by all these committees before it even gets to the point where people are talking to you about it. So, uh, so a phase one trial of a new strategy, new drug, new technique is one which has gone through all that before it even gets to you. Phase two trial is a more mature trial in which uh, a specific intervention is now uh, tested in a specific disease site. So we may say, ah, oh, this is a, an intervention in, in people who have uh, uh, blood pressure issues and in uh, men who are over the age of 50, da, da, da. it goes on. It's a very specific situation. So a phase two trial is to test a strategy or a new medicine or a new, uh, a new technique in a very specific uh, patient population, right? Phase three is where um, you get to the point where you believe this, uh, uh, that, the, uh, that what you're doing can truly change uh, uh, the standard of care in medicine. So in medicine, we have things that are called standards of care. You get to a certain situations that, ah, this is what we must have to do. An example is you have an infection, we have to use antibiotics, for example. It is a must-do, right? And so a phase three trial compares a, a new medicine strategy or technique against what the standard of care is at the day. And those are usually large trials because, because those trials are designed in such a way that if the, uh, the, the, uh, the trial is successful, you have essentially changed what we've done in medicine. So phase three trials are very important, and they're necessarily larger. Why are they larger? Because for every stage, be it phase one, phase two, phase three, um, we are asking a very specific question. And, uh, and wrapped around that whole idea of asking the question is, is, the, is to work through uh, what you must do to answer that. So we say this is going to be better than that, then we have to work out all the statistics to get there. So this sounds like, like important detail, and it is. What does it mean for you? It means that by the time you are sitting there and listening to, to someone presenting a clinical trial to you, um, it's gone through a multitude of, of, uh, of a review and, and uh, scrutiny before it even gets to you. That's very important. My own shop, I always say, I will, uh, any clinical trial which is in my hands, which I run, I should feel comfortable if it was my loved one, my, my, my relative, or my good friend sitting in front of me, uh, uh, hearing me present this to them. So that's very important. Even though I've talked about phase one, phase two, phase three, these days trials are, are really a mixture of these things. So it's not unusual to have a phase one trial with a phase two component or a phase two trial with a phase three expansion. So the, 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 the way these trials are structured are nowadays much more complex than simply one, two, or three. 
um, the thing that ha what happens during a clinical trial is is that when you hear about the trial, one of the things uh, that you will uh, have uh, uh, put in front of you is a consent form. You're going to hear more about it uh, uh, with my colleagues in the next uh, two talks. But what this consent form is is a written document which which will uh, really lay out for you what's being done, why it's being done, what's the upside for you, what are the da potential downsides, you know, uh, who is responsible for this trial, and who can you contact at any time if you have questions about this trial. It is a, it is a document which is very important because it lays out exactly what happens. In, in uh, almost all these trials in which we're treating patients, um, you will have someone who, not just a doctor in charge of it, but also a study coordinator or a nurse that, that, uh, that oversees the trial. So you have a team of people. And one of the things you, you are going to get from this are, is a document called a calendar. So one of the most uh, important questions that people ask me and, and, mo and oftentimes uh, uh, ask me is, you know, <clears throat> what do I have to do? What's, you know, how, how many times do I have to be here? When do I have to be here? So you get a specific calendar. And as you've already sort of surmised, uh, because we do trials in a systematic way and we do it across multiple institutions or, uh, and multiple uh, doctors, it's always done exactly the same way. So we maintain a structure to this trial. And because of that, the calendar is something which will come forth and help you decide uh, how, uh, and help you understand uh, your obligations, your, your scheduling, and so on and so forth. So what is it that's happening now with the COVID-19 pandemic? Well, trials are important. And we knew at the beginning when this happened almost a year ago, things were frozen because nobody knew what to do. This is nothing we had prepared for. And we have had to really sort of turn on a dime and develop new strategies and technique. And here are some of them. First of all, we sort of looked very hard and tried to minimize travel to the institution. Because some of these involve medicines which are brand new and only available where the trial uh, takes place, you do have to come to the institution. But where it is not necessary, we try to streamline. We've pushed out a lot of the investigations to outside facilities and outside clinics. And more importantly, we sort of wrapped in uh, strategies about what to do if patients uh, uh, come in and are COVID positive, how it integrates with COVID vaccination. And I'm going to say a few words about uh, these two latter factors, but be aware uh, on today, April 7th, that's what we're doing, but it could change uh, in the next hour. So uh, what we have uh, told patients is that uh, getting the COVID-19 vaccination is very important and where you can get it to go get it. And, to, and that oftentimes, unless it interferes directly with uh, the mechanism of action of the therapy or in some way, shape, or form with uh, with the therapy that we're doing, uh, which is rare, we will advocate for patients to get the vaccine where they are. If, if you unfortunately have, have come in contact with uh, COVID-19 or have an active infection, uh, we will monitor case by case, day by day. Uh, in general, what we hope is, is that as uh, we uh, allow the symptoms to occur and to uh, recede, then, then we will re uh, um, uh, reassess things, and usually that's in a period of about three weeks. And these are all things that are, are uh, subject to change, as you might expect. And lastly, the, the best antidote for this is actually to have close contact with the clinical trial team. 
In the last few seconds, again, I want to emphasize the takeaway point. Number one, uh, trials are very important. It's a mechanism to, for us to present new things to you. Uh, but most importantly, the last thing I'm going to say is that you are the boss of that. You are in the driver's seat. You have the right to ask questions. You have the right to say no to the trial as well and to understand what your treatment options are. And at that, I'll stop and, and allow uh, Dr. Messner to take the floor again. Thank you very much for listening to me. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Wong. That was really wonderful. You really set the context for that program today, um, covering a lot of key issues about clinical trials that are on people's minds. And I know that there'll be lots of questions for you during the Q&A as well. So thank you so much. Thank you. It's excellent, really. Outstanding. Thank you. And our next speaker is Ms. Georgie Kusak. Ms. Kusak is an oncology nurse. She's Director of Education and Patient Safety, Office of the Clinical Director, National Heart, Lung, and Blood Institute, Adjunct Nurse Leader, Nursing Research and Translational Science, Clinical Center, National Institutes of Health. And uh, Ms. Kusak will be addressing how and where clinical trials are conducted, how you may participate in a clinical trial, accessing resources for clinical trials, the increasing role of telehealth and telemedicine appointments. It's really my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Ms. Kusak. Thank you, Dr. Mesner, for allowing me to participate in your discussion, and to Dr. Wong for uh, setting uh, the precedent, really, for what we are doing in clinical trials. It's really my pleasure to speak about this topic, which is near and dear to my heart. I've been in clinical trials for about 25 years at the National Institute of Health and so um, I've really dedicated my career to clinical trials and really appreciate the opportunity for this. So I'm going to talk a little bit about where clinical trials conducted and how are they conducted. So Dr. Wong did a nice job of talking about the different phases of clinical trials. The early phase clinical trials are usually done in um, some of the larger academic medical centers. Phase one and phase two studies um, where we conduct phase one studies where we conduct anywhere from 20 to 100 patients for those types of studies and then anywhere from 100 to 300 on phase two studies. Phase three studies, as you mentioned, are really done in larger academic medical centers, but they can also be done in MD offices, they can be done in the community, and because those studies really do require sometimes thousands of patients for us to really uh, be able to compare them to standard care treatments that are in the outside world, and so we want to be able to make sure we have a lot of patients. Many times you will see several centers um, that are involved for one study, and so you may be testing a particular drug, and you may do it at several different centers across the country, and those are called multi-center trials. And so how are those studies conducted? So the protocol is really a step-by-step -step approach, and it's used to help us to decide if there's a particular approach that is going to be more beneficial with using a specific agent. Each of the protocols will outline the type of study that it is, and Dr. Wong talked a little bit about the interventional trials. We also have natural history trials, um, where we will look at the natural history of diseases for patients. Some of our patients that are in some of the early stages of um, cancer, some of our uh, patients, we, some of our lymphoma patients, we do kind of watch and wait, and we may have them on a natural history trial for a period of time where we're just watching the natural history of the disease for that. And then they may go on standard care for a period of time, and we just uh, kind of see how things go with that. But they will, each study will outline the purpose of the study. They will outline any of the study interventions that may be done, whether the study is an FDA regulated study, uh, what are the actual eligibility criteria, because you do need to meet, 
meet certain criteria to go on a clinical trial, and those criteria are very well outlined in the protocol. And the reason they said eligibility criteria is really for the safety piece of it, to make sure that, um, you know, if your enzymes, if your liver enzymes are too high or something, and uh, there may be an interaction with the drug or something like that, we just want to make sure that uh, we are watching that very closely. They will, the protocol will outline the length of treatment and a specific contact person that you can contact. As Dr. Wong said, it is up to you, the patient, to make the decision about whether you continue. It's, it's a voluntary participation in clinical trials. You do have the option of any, at any time of stopping a clinical trial, but we do want you to talk to your investigators to look to see what is the best, um, you know, the best thing for you to do at that particular time for that. We do have very strict oversight um, from our institutional review boards for safety, especially well, with all of the clinical trials, especially the phase one and phase two, where in phase one studies we haven't done them before in humans, and so we want to watch the, um, you know, really look to make sure that the safety aspects are taken care of there. They also may have added protection with a, what we call a data safety monitoring board for that. The principal investigator is the person that's responsible for oversight of the study, but as Dr. Wong said, they may delegate certain responsibilities to other members of the research team. But it's important for you to know, as somebody that may participate in a clinical trial, that the team is always working collaboratively. It's a very interdisciplinary approach to make sure that um, patient safety is our utmost goal there uh, with the patients. Um, how can you participate in a clinical trial? So I, I would first discuss with your physician to see, uh, to seek out their opinion and their experience with clinical trials, because they may know of specific trials that are being done um, in, with your particular disease entity. There's also a variety of other resources that are available to you if you want to explore them for yourself. And so you can access them in two different ways. You can either go through a clinical trials list or what we call a clinical trials matching service. A clinical trials list will list for you the name and the description of specific clinical trials that are out there. So again, they'll talk about the description of the study, what are the eligibility criteria, and a contact person. And so different sites that have that, the National Cancer Institute uh, will provide you with the list of studies that are available in the U.S. and Canada, and that's the cancer.gov excuse me, .gov website, and you will type in a keyword, um, the, uh, and the phone and the email or online chat, you can do it any way through that. Or if you'd rather talk to somebody in person, you can call the 1-800-FOR-CANCER number and you can speak with somebody directly and they can um, let you know about your potential eligibility for different clinical trials. Another way to look at clinical trials, and this can be for any clinical trial, not only for cancer clinical trials, but for other diseases also, is to look at the clinicaltrials.gov website. And that gives you a listing of all the studies that are available for all types of diseases. And so you can search by disease or by condition when you go on that website. You can also perform an advanced search there where you will look for a specific phase of a study or type of intervention. Maybe you saw something on TV and you said, you know, I wonder if they're doing any clinical trials for my disease with this particular drug. And so you can look them up on there and uh, are able to tell that information. Another resource on the clinical trials list is CentralWatch. CentralWatch.com provides a list of industry-sponsored studies and also government studies, excuse me, government-funded studies. 
and uh, you would we would put in there the medical condition. You can also look up on any of these sites the geographic location. So if you wanted to do a study that was closer to home than maybe something that was across the country, you could put in a geographic location to see if there are any studies in your particular area. And again, you can also do drugs, uh, put in specific drugs for that also. And then there's also private companies out there, pharma companies that may have websites or toll-free numbers with a list of studies. And so you can go that route also. The other way to, um, to go is to look at a clinical trials matching service. And for the matching service, you will provide information to them about your type of cancer, your stage, um, any previous treatments that you've had, and then they will automatically sift through a database to find those studies for which you may be eligible. And some of those sites, and again, you're going to receive all this information at the end. Carolyn will provide all the resources to you that we're going over so you don't feel like you have to write down everything. But some of those examples are the ACT website about clinical trials. Um, and that is a uh, website that you can go on for that. And then there's another one called Emerging Med, uh, EmergingMed.com. So some of the questions, one of the things to be aware of with the clinical trials matching services is you want to make sure that you ask specific questions about is there a finder's fee because for some of them there may potentially be a finder's fee. The other websites I talked about earlier are all free websites for you to go on, but sometimes with these you do have a finder's fee. So you would um, you would ask that. You'd also need to ask them if you have to register. You also want to ask about confidentiality. You know, if they take your information down, is there confidentiality built into the system so that um, so that you know that the information is confidential? Uh, where do they get their list from of their clinical trials? Is there a ranking list of studies? And then um, can you contact online or on, you know, or by phone for that? So those are just some of the different sites out there, again, if you are interested in, in looking for yourself. And I will tell you, many, many patients will look up their own studies, and many of the patients that, that we get at our institution, I know, where um, it used to be that it was 60% physicians referring and 40% patients referring themselves. Now a lot of patients refer themselves, and so it's kind of flipped on that. And so we do have a lot of um, patients that do self-referrals. Again, I would reemphasize, once you do find out if there are particular studies that you are eligible for, always go back to your physician and discuss those with your oncologist to find out, you know, if they have experience with them or what decision, you know, what they think might be the best option for you in terms of doing that, because they may have additional knowledge around those. And then accessing resources for clinical trials. Um, probably one of the biggest things, uh, information that we um, get from patients is paying for clinical trials and, and how is that done and who is your best resource for that. And so when you look at accessing resources and paying for clinical trials, you're going to look at their patient care costs and their research costs. So your patient care costs are things like your doctor visits, your hospital stays, your standard care treatments, um, lab tests, x-rays, any other types of imaging tests. And then your research costs are really the study drug, the lab tests that are performed solely for research purposes, and some of the added x-rays and imaging tests that are also done specifically for the research. And it's important to know the difference between these costs because sometimes insurance companies will pay for those, um, you know, pay for some of the tests, but some of the research-related things and sometimes the study drugs they may or may not pay for. And so you just want to be aware, um, you know, check with your insurance company, 
to make sure that um, you know that that different things are covered. If you have a person at your physician's office or um, a social worker that you work with routinely, you can tap into them for that. Um, and Carolyn will go over the resources that Cancer Care offers in terms of the social work services that they offer. But it's important to just to know that so that you know up front that you know who who will be paying for study drugs. Um, are there specific payment plans? Are there specific billing offices or patient advocates that you um, could tap into for that? And then we always talk about also just some of the legal resources. And the American Cancer Society has a nice legal handbook that um, that actually talks about some of the uh, cancer legal resource. It's a cancer legal resource center that they can. Um, you know, kind of tap into some of that information, too, of just some of the things that you want to be able to consider with that. And then my last topic is the increasing role of telehealth and telemedicine appointments. And in the era of COVID-19, there was a period, as Dr. Wong said last year, where we did stop. There were many institutions that were doing clinical trials that did close down their clinical trials programs, especially for new patients that were coming on board. And so they may have um, continue to treat patients that were on actively receiving treatment, but they weren't taking any new patients at that time. And, um, you know, as he said, we had to find other strategies to be able to do that. One of the big strategies that we started doing now is telehealth visits. And it's a little bit easier with your natural history patients than it is with your active treat patients. But we've, um, you know, I think that there have been many centers that have been able to negotiate with um, you know, if the clinical trial is not being, if, if they aren't able to travel, you know, if, if they have limitations with traveling by air and different things like that, then um, we would try and try to find places closer to home where they could potentially receive their treatments. And then sometimes we were shipping their treatments to them, different things like that. If it was a matter of just getting lab work and things like that, we would set them up with home labs versus having them come to us. And then the telehealth visits were really being done um, where, you know, and I'll let um, Dr. Pollock go a, a little more into detail about that, about the technology and stuff, but, you know, we've been able to successfully do a lot of visits by telehealth um, since COVID has started, uh, probably probably by fall. It uh, kind of got ironed out a little bit some of the kinks that were part of the system, so now I think it's, you know, kind of old home week with that. People are getting very used to telehealth visits. We do want to see patients at landmark time points. Uh, there's specific time points for repaging and things like that if it can't be done at home, but um, we are able to do that now. And so um, without going into further information about that, I'm going to turn it back over to Carolyn so that she can have Dr. Pallas discuss a little bit more about the telemedicine visits amongst her other talks. So thank you for the opportunity. Oh, thank you so much, Ms. Kusek. That was really outstanding and just a wonderful review of clinical trials. And you yourself, being in a clinical trial center um, at NIH and, yes, Institute of Health, um, certainly are a terrific resource on this program for people. And all the, as Ms. Kusek said, all of these um, websites or any information that we give out um, to you during the call, um, uh, you will be getting a survey monkey at the end of the call, and that will include all of the websites, institutions, and then some that we may not have mentioned that we think would be useful to you to have. So you will definitely, um, in addition to any notes, but don't feel you have to frantically write notes because we'll be sending you all the websites and, and uh, information to you. So thank you, and I'm sure there'll be questions for you as well during the Q&A. Thanks. 
And our next speaker is Dr. Guadalupe Palos. Dr. Palos is Clinical Protocol Administra Administration Manager, Office of Cancer Survivorship, the University of Texas MD Anderson Cancer Center. Dr. Palos will be addressing concerns about participating in clinical trials, uh, the meaning of conformed consent, benefits and risks participation in the context of COVID-19, guidelines for preparing for telehealth, telemedicine, and uh, uh, telemedicine appointments, including technology and list of questions. It's really my great pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Palos. Thank you, Dr. Messner, for the opportunity to be involved in this important discussion on clinical trials. And thank you to all of our listeners participating in this call uh, on a national and global level. Our two previous speakers, Dr. Wong and Ms. Cusett, provided an excellent overview of the state of clinical tr trials within the context of the pandemic. As they noted, clinical trials from conception to implementation have been severely impacted by the COVID-19 pandemic in many ways. Nonetheless, we have to remember clinical trials are an essential part of advancing the science. Why? Because remember, as you've heard our two previous speakers say, new science emerging from clinical trials can lead to evidence-based treatment and practice, which then translate into the best care for patients living with cancer. And that's what we want for everyone that's going through that experience. In the next few moments, I'm going to share uh, some information on benefits and risks of participating in clinical trials. I'll discuss a document that's called the informed consent, go over the meaning and the value of the informed consent as a communication tool. And then I'll close with some tips on how to have what I'm gonna put in quotation marks, a happy experience with your telemedicine appointment. Um, so let's begin with clinical trials. As you've heard so much before, and again, we're saying it again, clinical trials play an important role in medical research, and without them, innovative discoveries and breakthroughs wouldn't make it to the patients that, we, that really need them. Uh, just to make sure that we're all speaking the same language when, it talks, when we talk about clinical trials, the definition from NCI of a clinical trial, and this is a simple, it's not the one that they have for the professionals, it's a type of research study that tests how well new medical approaches work in people. These studies test new methods of screening, prevention, diagnosis, or treatment of a disease. Now, uh, Ms. Cusett gave you the website at uh, cancer.gov for, uh, for the finding a clinical trial. You can also find lots of other good information on that website about clinical trials, definitions, and how um, you can just get more comfortable with all of that experience. So why participate in clinical trials? Well, the benefits of participating in clinical trials is evident today in the COVID-19 experience. The thousands of people who participated in COVID-19 clinical trials, they were of all ages, races, gender, backgrounds, they were critical in the discovery of the new vaccines. Those who participated in these trials did it for the common good of all, because if you remember a year ago, we really didn't know anything about this disease. And so as the vaccines evolved, you know, people were asking questions about the risks associated with the vaccines. What were some of the side effects? And we're still learning new things about that as we get new vaccines out into um, the market for our, our patients and our, our loved ones. Those, those people who participated contributed to the evolving success of the vaccine program as we see it now. 
But I guess if we just boil it down to why participate in clinical trials, I have about maybe four reasons. One, clinical trials are necessary. Two, clinical trials help out others, including your own loved ones, or maybe even yourself. Three, clinical trials give you access to new treatments. And four, clinical trials need participants from all backgrounds to participate. One message that I'd like to leave with each of you is that remember, each one of you can participate in some type of clinical trial, even if it's not related to cancer or COVID. There are different types of clinical trials for different diseases. So if you have an opportunity or you think you might be interested in one, go out and ask questions about it. You are important for clinical trials, each one of you participating in this call. Participants of all backgrounds are needed to help us learn why some conditions or side effects from treatments occur more often within certain populations. So whatever your age, your race, your gender, your background, your profession, remember clinical trials need you. So there are, I just want to mention a few downsides to participating in clinical trials because I think it's always good to be transparent. You might find out that the clinical trial that you're involved in may need additional blood tests or scans or other tests. And Ms. Cusack gave some really good information about resources to go to about covering costs and there's um, additional costs. You may find that there's extra visits or checkups that may occur more often or last longer. And one thing that I always hear patients talk about is all the extra paperwork they're, they're required to complete. And then and some folks have even shared that they find the extra tests and appointments make them nervous. But if you can get past these uh, barriers or these blocks, you can also remember that some people like participating in these clinical trials because they like the extra attention that they get focused on them. So there is some, some good silver linings to all of this. Everyone is different. I do want you to remember, though, that clinical trials are often unenrolled. 37% of clinical trials don't enroll enough patients to move forward. So that means that particular treatment or whatever is not going to go anywhere So because we don't have enough people. And 11% of clinical trials fail to even enroll one patient. So, again, um, if we can't you know, have those clinical trials, we are going to have trouble advancing the science. So before entering a trial, you have to sign a statement that says you've been told about and that you understand what taking part in the trial means. That is called the informed consent. Remember, you cannot enter a trial without signing this agreement. You can ask any questions you like about anything you don't understand. And remember, if you don't want to take part in the trial, you don't have to. It's entirely voluntary. Some patients at times want to get their family's opinion or support for participating in a clinical trial. That's okay. That makes common sense. Ask the research team member if you can share the informed consent form with your family before you make a decision or you sign any forms. You can also ask the team member to highlight important sections of the informed consent to share with your family, such as the purpose of the study, the risks, the benefits, out-of-pocket expenses, and contact information of the clinical trial involves treatment that can lead to side effects. And you want contact information for someone that you can contact on the weekends or during holidays because it just seems that we always get unexpected surprises during those times. 
And I really like the idea that Dr. Wong brought up about the calendar. Ask them. Not all clinical trials have them available. So it's good to just ask your team, do they have a schedule or a calendar of all the events that are going to be taking place? Informed consent is an ongoing process throughout the trial. You should always be able to ask questions and get the answers to them while you're in the trial. And just to let, make sure, you should always receive a copy of the informed consent to keep for your file. So here's some of the important points that you want to have the informed consent cover. What is the trial trying to find out that can be called the study aim or the objective? If there's a treatment that's looking at, or a study that's an intervention study and looking at the comparison of standard practice with other types of treatment, they can sometimes use the term randomize or randomization or whatever, but ask somebody to define that and what they mean about that. And ask them to uh, explain to you what are the different treatment groups that they're speaking about. What are the possible risks and side effects? What are the benefits of participating in the study? Are there certain types of tests or checkups? and who will cover the expenses. And if there's going to be, uh, you need to ask if the study is going to require blood or tissue samples and how often those will be collected. And if so, will the researchers keep those samples for future studies? If not, what will happen to them? You want to ask where will the treatments take place and if necessary, and you know, which hospital you might need to go to or do they have you know, plans for that? COVID-19 has had an impact on people's decisions to participate in clinical trials. However, institutions offering clinical trials have made tremendous changes to assure patient safety. And you heard Dr. Wong give some beautiful examples of what is being done in his institution. And in our institution, which is the same as Dr. Wong's, we developed a moat model. And that's where the main hospital was cut off from all visitors and focused on patients and staff safety. And in our research teams, many investigators were, asked, were able to request changes through the IRB that would accommodate the telehealth technology to screen, recruit, obtain informed consent, and even collect data through telehealth uh, or tele teleconferences means. So again, during the pandemic, patient safety was a major concern for those involved or needing healthcare. To protect the safety of patients and their families during the pandemic, Regulations were relaxed to facilitate virtual care, and it could be the terms that you've used or, or heard is virtual care, telemedicine, or telehealth. They all are pretty much referring to the same thing. Telemedicine uses video or telephone communication, much like what we're doing right now even, is to connect patients with a medical professional for the exchange of information electronically. So as a patient, this gives you the option of seeing your provider in this manner instead of an in-person visit. The devices that are usually used include the phone, email, video, laptops, um, and computers. And now what we're seeing is that telemedicine, instead of just being a reaction to the crisis, is now becoming mainstream in healthcare. Telemedicine from routine checkups to appointments with specialists to urgent care and emergency care are very commonplace now. So to make sure you have a beneficial or a therapeutic or a happy experience with your appointment, it's important for you to prepare for that appointment before you have the actual um, visit. So I'm going to share some tips with you. And again, as, as, our two, as our other speakers have said, this information will be made available to you. So you might just want to relax and listen. The first one is be sure to check your patient portal every few days to keep up to date on emails. Now, let me back up even a step behind that is 
some people do not have access to computers or they don't know how to use them. They don't have smartphones. They don't have tablets. If that's the case, some of you may have some of the, uh, your your grandsons, your grandchildren, your nieces, your nephews. There's oh, there seems to every family nowadays seems to have some techie person available. See if you can connect with them and partner with them to see if they can help you during these visits. The other is you won't get as much privacy, but some people have even opted to go to libraries to try to use the computers that they don't have access. So it's good for you to think about these things to prepare for them ahead of time. On the day of your appointment, check your internet connection because, again, it never fails. Some, you know, technology likes to surprise us all, so something may come up. So at least if you prepare in advance, you'll be able to try to get a second backup plan. So maybe instead of using the computer, you're going to use a smartphone or et cetera. So remember, having a reliable internet connection is important. Set up for your appointment. Make sure that you touch base with your physician's office about any special technology setup that they might want to use. For example, some primary care offices don't have, you know, access to, even right now, to smartphones and computers, so they may just want to use the telephone to, to have the routine visit, just like what we're doing right now with this discussion. If there's an app, many of the institutions now have what is called, like, MyChart app. Be sure and download it on your smartphone if you have it, and be sure that you have an account so you're not doing all of that at the last minute. Choose a quiet, private place so you can hear your physician and they, in turn, can hear you. You also want to complete any paperwork ahead of time. Often during that, in that patient portal, they'll send you questionnaires. They'll ask you to update your medical history. So it's good to get all of that. And it's good to have a list of your current medical conditions, your medications, your pharmacy contacts, your insurance contacts and maybe any consent for telemedicine or payment information. If you have all that, perhaps put it in a notebook or a folder so you have it readily available for all of your primary care providers or all of your providers that you're going to be having televisits with. And if needed and you're able to, uh, it's helpful to get your vital signs. I've noticed that so um, more and more offices are asking their patients about their blood pressures or their temperatures, their weight. So it's always good to try to get those if you can. And one thing that's really important is to contact your insurance ahead of time about your visit so you won't be caught by surprise about any co-pays. So uh, most insurance companies now are considering telemedicine a, comp a visit by telemedicine comparable to an in-person visit. So they are possibly subject to the same co-pays. The other things that are important is write down your questions ahead of time. Before you hang up, review your treatment plan with your physician. It's also helpful to write it down so you don't forget the plan. If needed, schedule a follow-up visit before you hang up. If you have any uncertainty about instructions or information or next steps, ask them before you hang up. Do not feel like you're bothering the provider. Do not feel like you're taking up too much time because if you don't get the information that you need, it's going to be hard for you to really optimize the care that you're getting and follow the instructions that they've asked you to do. Don't feel rushed or that you're taking up too much time. And for those of you, there's some of us maybe sometimes that have difficulty in hearing or believe someone is speaking too fast, just ask them to speak louder or to slow down. And that's even made more challenging if we're wearing the masks while we're doing these virtual visits. Telemedicine is booming, but many people still face huge barriers to virtual care. 
For example, at times there may be a need for interpreters, which again just adds to some of the confusion. Some of the patients may not feel at ease talking to a computer or a phone or a face like that, or they're not familiar with the technology, or maybe they can't operate the necessary devices. Telemedicine is here to stay, and it has changed healthcare for the better. Finally, I just want to remind you to maintain a balance, plan ahead, and prepare for your visit as best as you can. My colleagues and I look forward to hearing from you and sharing any tips about participating in clinical trials or in preparing for a successful telemedicine visit. If I leave you with two thoughts, this, this would be the two thoughts. Participate in a clinical trial. And then the second one is prepare for your telemedicine visit so you can have a happy experience with that. And this concludes my remarks. Thank you. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Palos. That was really outstanding and just a wonderful um, review of you know many of the questions that people have about in, about clinical trials. And so um, thank you. I know there'll be questions for you during the Q and A as well. And. Um, I'm just going to say a few words about the services that you can access from Cancer Care. Um, uh, Cancer Care is a national nonprofit organization, um, so we provide um, programs and services to people throughout the United States. Um, we those services include um, you can call our Hope Line. It's one eight hundred eight one three four six seven three, and again, you'll be getting that information as well. Um, um, with your Survey Monkey information, so you'll be getting that written down for you as well. Or you can visit our website at www.cancercare.org. If you call our Hope Line and speak with one of our oncology social workers, there's a host of services you can access, and you can also access them by going online as well to our organization. Um, we offer um, really practical um, financial and co-payment assistance, which can be incredibly invaluable to people, particularly at this time. Always been a need, but now even more so. And we do have um, very specific um, services as well that we've instituted to help people um, during this pandemic as well, um, practical, practical needs and financial needs as well. Um, we also have um, a case management services, and that means that if for some reason we don't have the service, we're going to connect you with, a, with an organization that can provide those services to you. And we won't just give you a list of places to call, but we will also kind of almost virtually go with you so we're sure you're connected um, and get the help you need. And if you don't, we'll keep with you until you get those services that you need. Um, and then, of course, um, in addition to that, we do offer um, um, online uh, support groups, so many people find that very helpful. Those online support groups um, happen, uh, they go on like 24 hours a day, so basically there, there isn't a specific time you have to join the group. We do um, ask people to register for those groups, and we do, um, and the social worker does a little bit pre-screen you to get you, give you an idea of what the group would be like, but many people find that to be a very helpful service. And the online groups are for um, cover all different topics from uh, from um, caregiving to young adults, older adults, middle-aged adults, um, including services such as um, you know a number of different um, uh, topics on caregiving and. Uh, 
and living with uh, with cancer, coping with different types of cancers. So it really is, um, and, and for people of all ages. And that's the other thing about um, cancer care. Um, all of our services are available to people of all ages. So we have a Cancer Care for Kids program, um, who are a program that is for children who are affected by cancer in their families. Um, in addition to that, um, we also run these workshops that you're part of today. We do about 75 of them per year on different topics, and we also have a number of different publications. So um, in many ways, there's, we have something for everyone, and do take advantage of these free services. Now, before we move into the Q&A, um, um, I do want to, again, just ask you just a few questions before we move into the question and answer period. So. Um, we're going to now just ask you a few questions, um, again, to get a sense of um, what you've learned during the program today. And, um, and so um, we're going to start with um, um, a question. Um, first question is, as a result of what I learned in this workshop, I have greater knowledge of what happens in a clinical trial. Again, one is the highest score and five the lowest score. And the next question is, as a result of what I learned in this workshop, I feel more confident about the meaning of informed consent. Again, one is the highest score and five the lowest score. The next question is, as a result of what I learned in this workshop, I am more likely to participate in a clinical trial. Again, one is the highest score and five the lowest score. And just two questions left. The next question is, as a result of what I learned in this workshop, I have greater confidence in the specific questions to ask the healthcare team about clinical trial participation in the context of COVID-19. And again, one is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And this will be the last question. As a result of this workshop, I have greater confidence in including clinical trials in my treatment options. Again, one is the highest score rating and five is the lowest rating. Okay, well, I want to thank you all for participating in the uh, in these questions and uh, I really appreciate your responses to them because that will help us again uh, in our planning future programs on both clinical trials and also we get information about um, what we can be doing that would either enhance the program or what is working for you. So that's really important. And now I'm going to ask Michelle to bring all of our speakers on board. I'm going to try to take as many of your questions as possible. And many of you have already started posting questions. So I'm going to ask Michelle to explain to you how to queue up for questions. And uh, Michelle, if you could do that, please. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to ask a question, please press star then 1 on your touchtone telephone. If your question has been answered or you wish to remove yourself from the queue, 
please press the pound key. For those on the web, may submit questions by clicking Ask a Question. Again, ladies and gentlemen, to ask a question, please press star, then one. And we have a number of online questions right now, so we're going to start with those. And um, the first question is for Dr. Palos. Um, what if I can't understand the document about informed consent? Who can I go to for help? Wow, that's an excellent question because some of these informed consents are like 15 pages long and have a lot of legalese uh, terminology in them. There are some institutions that are trying to make them briefer. All informed consents should be some, ranging between to a fifth to a seventh grade reading level, literacy level. But even so, with all the legalese in there, they're hard to, to understand sometimes. I would ask the research team member, if you have a specific question about a section, ask the research member who's teaching you about the study to explain that to you. And one of the things that I always try to um, encourage patients to do, if they have any questions like that, take the document home. Go over it with someone that you trust. Um, ask, see if they can answer some of the questions as far as the terminology of some of that. And then that way you can jot down more specific questions and take those then back to your team. You do, very rarely do you have to quickly sign the informed consent while you're there. And, I, and if you do, I would really encourage you to take a step back and take a, you know, a breath and, and really decide whether or not you want to participate in the study if they're asking you to sign on on that particular day. Try for a you know, two-step. I call it a two-step informed consent process. Take your time, read the document, share it with someone that you trust, and if you have questions, come back to your team and ask those questions. That's, I, I think that will help make you feel a little bit better about whether or not you feel comfortable with signing the document. Excellent. Thank you so much. And um, we have another question from one of our online participants. Um, this is for Dr. Wong. Um, at what point during my treatment can I join a clinical trial? Again, a great question. So um, clinical trials uh, or participating in clinical trials, especially the therapeutic ones, those decisions are made when we make decisions about treatment. And you could be on the treatment, and the decision is made to continue because it's helping you and not hurting you, and you mutually decide to go forward, and, and that's one option. The other option is when you come to a treatment decision, so where do these occur? These occur when uh, we are evaluating how well the, your current treatment is going, and sometimes that's either clinical, through clinical examination, or looking at lab results, or sometimes through a CAT scan or MRI scan or some sort of scan that gives you a reading, a readout as to uh, the response of your disease to therapy. And it, I'm using a cancer situation, but any, other, any disease is amenable to this. So what I tell patients at, at decision points where we have to make decisions about uh, the, the strategy you're on, those are the points in which we will put everything on the table. And one of the things on the table is the, the clinical trial option. There's not always a clinical trial to cover every eventuality. We know that. But in the case that there is, that's a question to ask. So whenever you are in a situation where you're making a treatment decision, uh, that's a time to, to sort of ask a question. You know, is, this, is there a possibility of a clinical trial? In certain situations, uh, clinical trials are all, in the cancer arena, are all posted online. Clinicaltrial.gov is a place where many of us in academic centers will assess a trial. That's a, uh, that's a, um, a, a site that collates to clinical trials. It is, it is a, a publicly funded site. 
uh, with our taxpayer dollars, and therefore uh, it is a purely 100% accession site, information accession site, where you put, we can go and look at the information. So sometimes you find a site, find, find a trial. Again, if you do, that's a time to just bring it up with your doctor. So multiple inputs into that decision making, but again, the most uh, uh, obvious places when you make decisions about treatment. Excellent. Um, and um, for Ms. Kusak, can I be in more than one clinical trial? Question. Yeah, that actually is a good question. So it actually depends on the, you know, we sometimes will have clinical trials that kind of go together. You want to make sure that you're not in a competing clinical trial uh, with different treatments and that kind of stuff. It depends on the type of trial that you're, that you're actually on. Some of our trials, we may have... Um, an added trial for like a quality of life. It may be included in the original trial, but we may have a separate quality of life study that we may put patients on and different things like that. We also may have um, different trials looking at specific time points. Like we had a trial one time around uh, the drug Thiotepo, which is a type of chemotherapy drug where we were looking at specific pharmacokinetics or the blood levels of how well it's absorbed and distributed just around that one. And so that may be uh, trial that, you know, you do in conjunction with that. Again, it's always important to discuss that with your physician to make sure that they are aware of anything that you're getting. And, and one of the big things about clinical trials that we always look at is if somebody were to have any kind of adverse events or adverse effects or specific side effects, we want to know all of the different medications that they're on and any other alternative treatments that they're on and different things like that because it may be that some of those alternative treatments may have caused you to have that specific side effect and not necessarily the treatment drug that we're actually looking at or the treatment intervention that we're looking at. And so it's just very important that you uh, make people aware of that, especially if you're doing something like alternative medicines or different things like that. That team really needs to be aware of everything that you're taking at that point. Excellent. Thank you. And, um, oh, yes, yes. Again, sure. just to reiterate, it depends on the type of clinical trial, and I say yes right. to everything that was said before me, but sometimes a clinical trial may be to take blood, but you do molecular testing, and, uh, or sometimes it's, uh, it has to do with uh, doing surveys about uh, quality of life issues. So uh, I think the important thing that the previous speaker said was competing clinical trials. So you should not be on two trials that are trying to be therapeutic, using a medicine to, for instance, to treat you, because they'll run into each other. And then you have then you have one of those one step forward, three step backward type of things. Uh, the most important thing is is clear communication. Ask the people who are treating you about that, exact that question whether these trials will compete. Uh, but it's important to uh, but to, to know that the the devil's in the details. So yes, you could be at more than one clinical trial, uh, but always check in. Excellent. Um, and um, um, uh, Doctor. Um Wong, another question for you. Um, so am I allowed to back out of clinical trials whenever I want? Yes. What did I say? Mm -hmm. You're the boss. And, uh, and that's very <laughs> important because clinical trials are a mechanism that we use to sort of bring new strategies and therapies. And, and an example, uh, unfortunately, which occurred during a COVID pandemic when, you know, the governor of Texas closed uh, the state to other uh, to, to folks from outside the state, it was impossible for uh, my patients from outside Texas to come in uh, for the trial. So we've had to 
sort of uh, re, you know sort of uh, turn you know sort of turn on a dime and uh, figure out how to actually uh, uh, do the trial. In some cases, it's not possible to do it. Uh, there are situations where somebody's uh, situation changes and makes it difficult to travel, for instance, to, to come in to do uh, uh, interventional things. And we'll work with you. Our commitment is to you as a person to, to, look, at, to look after you as best we can to, to pick the best strategy moving forward. And uh, that best strategy may change depending on the circumstances. So I'm going to end by saying uh, what I said at the end of my segment, which is you are the boss. Excellent. Um, and um, there's another question about will participating in a trial, does participating in a clinical trial mean limiting activities in my daily life or changing it drastically? Um, so um, I'm going to ask everyone to comment on that one, um, starting with Ms. Cusack. I think it actually depends on the type of trial that you're on. It depends on the intensity of the trial, um, how often you're getting the treatments. You know, different treatments are done on different regimens, meaning that you may get a treatment that is being done once every two weeks or one treatment that is being done every five days and then you have off for three weeks or, you know, Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. It, it actually really depends on the type of treatment that you're going to be getting and those kinds of things. I mean, we don't, we don't, we don't want you having so many side effects on a treatment that it's totally you know, inhibiting your ability. We want you to stay as active as possible. And so that's one of the decision-making things that we talk about also when people decide whether to stay on trials or come off trials is whether, you know, how well you're tolerating the treatment, what are the side effects. We do really go over, as Dr. Wong said earlier, we go over that treatment schedule with you, and you have to agree to that treatment schedule. And so we do want you to stick to that treatment schedule as much as possible, especially because a lot of the time points are around safety. And so if we want you to get blood drawn at certain time points or get your treatment, it's because that has been shown to be the best times to either get the treatment or the best times to get the blood drawn to check your levels and things like that. So once you sign on to a clinical trial, we want you to be able to, as much as possible, adhere to the schedule, and then you have to be able to decide for yourself whether this is going to fit with, you know, what's going on in your life at the time and those kinds of things. So it's not a, you know, it's not a, a cut and dry decision always going on a clinical trial. Sometimes you have to go out of town because they may not be offering that within your town. And so I'll stop there and let the others talk. But, I, you know, there's a lot of that kind of goes into that. But we want you to stay as active as possible. And normalcy is what we're looking for as much as possible. Anyone else like to add to that? Yeah, I'm just going to say that, the, that oftentimes when you come to a therapeutic clinical trial, there may be more than one option. And we sometimes have uh, sometimes two or sometimes even three options for the same sort of situation that you're in. Uh, and so uh, we'll sit down with the, the, the patient and say, hey, listen, you know, there are these three possibilities here. Uh, and and the, the reason, I should also point, the reason why it's a trial is because, the, you know, it's not been proven whether any of those individual treatments are superior to anything else. Remember, it's our, it's our, our attempt to really define the next steps in treatment. Uh, and if we know, as I tell my patients, if I knew which one was better, it wouldn't be a trial. We would just automatically use that as a standard of care. And so, therefore, uh, I'll sit down and say, now, we don't know which of these are, are going to be the best therapies uh, in the future, but here are the possibilities, and here are the individual calendars, and do these fit your travel schedule? Is this 
is this something you can do or you want to do? Uh, and so uh, it's a collaborative effort, uh, and I want to really emphasize that. It's a collaborative effort between us on this side of the fence who are trying to move the field forward and do the best thing with for you and to get you the, the, the best new therapies, and on your side where you have to bring your own uh, needs and wants and your vision of your life ahead of you and what and one of the things I ask my patient and I would like to think about that is what is, what is important for you right now? What are the things that you need to do? And I had a patient of mine who said, Dr. Wong, my daughter is getting married in six months, and I really need to make that, and, and uh, it's, it's an out-of-country sort of wedding, so I really need to be able to travel. And, and, we, back, and we work backwards from that point. Right? Other people said, you know, for, the ability for me to, uh, to be a performing artist is important. I want to keep doing that as much as possible. Here's my schedule. Well, how does that work? We are trying to work collaboratively with you, and that's an important thing I want to leave you with. Excellent. And Dr. Palos, this is, you've covered this, but again, it looks like it's a question here. So at what point during my treatment, um, well, actually, I'm sorry, it's um, how much time does the patient have to sign the consent form? And also, what if I can't understand the document about informed consent? Who can I go to for help? Um, I, well, I believe we, we try to address that earlier. I think, again, you can talk to the person who is recruiting you or enrolling you into the study or who approached you about the study. Um, usually um, they're the ones that have maybe gone to end services or have been trained by the investigator. They are acting on behalf of the uh, investigator. The, uh, the other person you can ask to speak to is the investigator themselves, whoever's name is on the informed consent. You can ask to speak to them and ask them to help you explain, you know, to go through some of the questions you may have on the informed consent. And I'm sorry, what was the first part of that? I, I, I lost oh, so what if I don't quite understand the form itself and I don't, and I don't, um, I feel uncomfortable, you know, answering it because I don't really. Oh, I think the other part of that too was how long do you have? You heard me mention the two steps. You know, you can have a couple of days. Uh, you know, it depends again on the study and uh, what kind of, of time requirements they have on them. I do want to add one other thing. A lot of our discussion today has been focused on treatment clinical trials. There are other types of clinical trials. There are clinical trials that focus on exercise, clinical trials that are physical activity, uh, those that work on um, nutrition, those that look at long-term cancer survivors. So there, if you are already past the treatment stage but you think you're still interested in clinical trials or participating in one, then go ahead and ask about your, your, your team, your healthcare team, are there any type of clinical trials that they think you might be suited for? The other last thing I'd like to say, too, is we really need representation from our, uh, our cultural groups, our racial groups. Um, we need more men. I mean, there are certain groups of folks that just don't, we don't have the numbers that we need um, in our clinical trials. And those folks are important because, again, they can tell us why some of these uh, differences occur among the groups. So, again, I encourage you to think about clinical trials. It's evolved a long way the last 10, 5 years even. And as Dr. Wong has kept saying, it's a collaborative issue now, I mean, a collaborative approach. We just go, don't go in there and say, you have to do this, this, this. We really try to work with the patient and the family to make sure that we are meeting everyone's needs and still following the protocol the way we need to. 
Excellent. Thank you so much. And um, now we're just going to conclude with our speakers just um, providing just a takeaway. Um, I'll start with Dr. Wong, just what you'd like people to remember um, from from today's call, and then we'll go to Dr. Kusak and, and Ms. Kusak and then to Dr. Palos. So uh, thank you for uh, for that. And, you know, again, uh, the take-home message is collaborative uh, relationship. And who's the boss? You're the boss. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> and Ms. Kusak? I think for me it's accessing your resources, know what your resources are so that you are well-informed to be able to make some informed decision about that and just ask lots and lots of questions. If you ever have any questions, just feel free to ask them. And that's what your, you know, that your team has a responsibility to you is, you know, to make sure that you are informed about this and to make sure that you're going to be able to uh, have everything you need to be able to be an informed participant. So ask lots of questions. Never be afraid of doing that. Thank you. And very good. And back to Attache Palos. Well, the first one that you've heard all of us say is participate in clinical trials if given the option. And if they don't talk to you, so if your team doesn't talk to you about a clinical trial, ask them. The second point is to prepare as well as you can for your telemedicine visit. After a while, it won't be so um, confusing, chaotic. It'll be more of a norm of what you could have or expected from your face-to-face -face visit. Thank you. I want to thank all of our speakers. You've been really phenomenal. And I want to thank our participants who really asked such great questions online. And I also realize that there are many more of you in in, in queue right now who um, did not get to ask your question. So I want to kind of go over that with you. If you asked a question today or if you didn't get to ask a question but you heard someone else's question and, and you learned something throughout the entire call, we want you to take all the information that you have and all your questions back to your treating healthcare team because they know you the best. And so then you they can help you to address you know, any any further questions that you may have. And I know there are many other questions that this program actually um, has uh, created for many of you, and we hope that it's given you the confidence and freedom to go back to your treating healthcare team. That message very clear for all of us today is, of course, um, take this information and go back and see how it applies to you specifically. Um, also, um, I do want to just remind all of you that for anyone who wishes to access services from cancer care, you know you will be able to, you'll be sent a you'll be sent to Survey Monkey. They'll have all the information about how to call cancer care, um, how to how to enroll, and we'll get the information about the clinical trial. Um, gov and um, the 800 number as well, and all the other resources, Emerging Med, all the information that was given out today, you'll be getting that um, in the SurveyMonkey. So in addition to it being an evaluation of the program, you'll also get a chance to actually see all of the resources that our speakers mentioned. I want to thank you all for your participation today, and I want to uh, thank you all, and uh, have a very fine day. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for participating. This concludes the workshop, and you may now disconnect. Everyone, have a great day.